Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 141 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, October 30th, the day before Halloween. Ooh. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. What are you going as for Halloween? Uh, every year it's the same thing. I have a referee shirt and uh-huh. a whistle, uh-huh. and I go around calling party fouls. Um, are you going to call people for running outside the baseline who are not running outside the baseline? I'm, I'm going to use my oh, judgment. I'm going to use my judgment to call out runners who interfere with the play. Yes. Um, <laughs> it, so, so when Chief Justice Roberts talks about you know being an umpire and how my job is just to call balls and strikes, right? Umpires do. They've more got than other call. stuff. So, so hey, non non sports ball people, these, we're just talking about the probably the worst um, call in a what? World Series game that I've ever seen. Um, I think Don Deckinger. I think Don Deckinger is, is now officially <laughs> off the hook. Your your talent for hyperbole is on full display. Listen, I'm not a national supporter by any stretch. I don't think I think my priors, you know, are, are well established here, and I couldn't believe that. Call. You really think it's that bad? Okay, well, we, in the frivolity <laughs> segment, you, this is one thing we will talk about. We yeah. also are going to talk you a know little Game almost, of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, there's some Thrones. You know, it's almost as bad. What? Um, the the loophole that the White House thinks it's found to make Ken Cuccinelli the acting DHS oh, secretary. Oh, nice segue. Thank you. In, in the substantive component of the show, we will talk once again about DHS. Oh Do we succession. have to? There's a, a little a little bombshell overnight about a new theory that's in play that is uh, it's as entertaining as it is complex, and we will break it down for you. Is it entertaining? Oh, I, well, <laughs> to the extent anything on this show is entertaining, that's there's a ceiling on that. Um, on a more serious note, we'll definitely uh, talk about a few issues related to the al-Baghdadi raid. Uh, and there's some questions that bubbled up for at least one news cycle, and then it kind of went away, uh, relating to congressional notifications and oversight. Not so, that the Kushinari thing is not serious, by the way. Oh, yeah. No, no. no but there is there is an element of farce to the DHS succession yes. stuff, to all the appointments and succession stuff. Yep. Um, it's not there's, – there's no element of farce with the, no. uh, the Baghdadi raid. Uh, we've all- Except maybe the president's press conference. Yeah, you're right. Well, everything, everything you know, King Midas there. Everything yeah, he touches. There you go. So what, what's who's the reverse King Midas? Everything I touch turns to SHI. You know what? I, there's got to be some. Yeah. There's something there. Um, and so then we also are going to talk about the decision in Abdul Razak, uh, a Gitmo habeas decision uh, that I i guessing that neither of us are terribly surprised by the way that turned out. No, but it's an important military commission habeas case, and I think it actually illustrates, to me, the work that two pretty important D.C. Circuit decisions do in circumscribing what district courts can do in Guantanamo cases. So, you know, one on the Eighth Amendment side, one on the timing side. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important only in sort of, I think, reinforcing the breadth of these two D.C. Circuit decisions, neither of which I think are quite right. So when we get to it, you talk about those dimensions, and I want to emphasize the uh, the uns- almost unspoken assumption in the case that there is space for an Eighth Amendment argument, mm. which I think actually you know has obviously broader implications. It's just interesting to ask, why is that taken uh, without exception in that setting, yet in the sort of regular military detention instead of military commission Gitmo cases, uh, that ends up being such a hotly contested point. Yep. Okay, so we'll do all that. I think it gives us... Oh, and well, we'll visit Trumplandia, where we've got things like uh, a stay of production of... The, an administrative stay. An administrative right. stay. In the Mueller yeah, grand jury right. case. Uh, this is this is about whether when documents from the grand jury investigation 
under the Mueller investigation would be conveyed to the House. Yep. And uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the impeachment vote decision. To yep. A vote on opening an impeachment yep. inquiry. Uh, we'll talk about the the latest in the in the in the ever shifting uh, charge against the impeachment proceedings by congressional Republicans. That that now it's all fruit of the poisonous tree, Bobby. Fruit of the poisonous. Hey, it's a I mistrial. Remember, I remember that from criminal law. It's oh, a mistrial. It's a. Mi- <laughs> Object. I want to make a motion for a law type thing. <laughs> Simpsons. Yes. So, I, so, so the Simpsons gif was in was in fine form. <laughs> I actually went in a different direction. I went with the liar liar gif. I saw um, that. Yeah, right? It was grainy, but it was. I a good object scene. on what ground, Mister Reed? Because it's devastating to my case. Can I just say, liar liar is a pretty good movie. I'm it holds not a, up. I'm not a big Jim Carrey fan. Yeah. That movie's pretty funny. It holds up. Um, Especially these days. The premise, if you haven't seen it, the premise is uh, his his kid makes he's so full of it. He's 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 constantly lying. Right. His kid makes a birthday wish and blows the candle out, and it's the dad can't lie, and it just wrecks him in his. And the dad's a lawyer. Career. Yeah, yeah, which you would like to think would be such a problem, but for him, it turns out to be. But it's a great movie. Let's start with Baghdadi. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Okay, so surely every listener knows that uh, in a daring special operations uh, raid conducted, I guess that that unfolded what over Saturday Saturday, Saturday afternoon and evening. Yeah, um, uh, we're told Delta Force uh, conducted the raid, crossed Syria from a base in northern Iraq and Erbil in that area, and uh, located the guy. Now. How did they know he was there? You know, the the drips and drabs of information that have been released uh, suggest that this has been an ongoing process of manhunting where our erstwhile Kurdish allies were providing critical information. Um, Some of this ostensibly involved uh, getting information from people that have been captured, which raises a lot of interesting questions about who exactly is doing interrogation? What were the techniques? Um, all the all the sort of things that are familiar to the public from the film uh, Zero Dark Thirty about the process, whether it's accurate or not, about the general idea that there's a process of trying to get human intelligence from captives, combining that with signals intelligence and sensors and so forth. There there are hints in the record that there were some sensors involved in monitoring particular locations, and some combination of these things finally led to actionable intelligence that he was on site at a particular time and place the the raid was carried out you know apparently with you know really you know fantastic skill and effectiveness um and Baghdadi himself dies uh, by detonating his explosive vest some other people die along the way including some of his apparently multiple wives um interesting question are there any detainees taken from the site. Uh, I've heard at least one rumble that there might be. I'm looking to hear more about that if it turns out to be the case. Uh, meanwhile, what's what ended up being the sort of legal angle on the story were complaints from Speaker Pelosi and others about lack of notification in, in a particular framing. The framing was the Russians were notified. Some have reported, though I've not seen it confirmed, but some have reported that maybe some Republican Members of Congress received notification, but that definitely Democrat leaders in in the overall leadership or in Democratic the, leaders, Democratic sorry yes Democratic leaders in the overall leadership structure or uh, key committee leaders, uh, whether that be Intelligence Committee Chairman Schiff or whether it's Armed Services etc. That Democrats were cut out of the notification process, um, and the coverage on this some of this was framed simply as sort of this is so tacky and inappropriate, uh, you know, more, more, you know, game playing. And that's fine. It's not a legal issue. But some of the framing suggested that there was at least hinted that 
in fact, there was a violation of notification frameworks. Uh, and so I wrote something at Lawfare explaining how notification actually works in this setting because it's a very important topic. It's poorly understood. I would say it's fair, and Steve, tell me if you agree with this, that most people who have some general familiar, familiarity with the law regulating uh, sort of sensitive operations in general understand that there's a covert action oversight framework where the president has to sign a written finding yep. or they have some sense that the president has to authorize it and that the congressional intelligence committees or somebody, maybe the leadership, you know, somebody gets that notification within a certain time period and that there's, they might even know that there are special rules for narrowing the scope of the disclosure to the so-called gang of eight. Um, here's the thing. Uh, we have absolutely no reason to think this was a Title 50 covert action right. as opposed to a Title 10 uh, special operations, but nonetheless military operation. Um, In the context of a of, a, of, of uh, an armed conflict that yeah. on the government's reading, Congress has authorized. Right. It's And it's in theater. The whole nine yards, is it's targeted, sure. Um, and there are lots of targeted special opera- operation raids that go on in theater all the time. This is just an especially politically and strategically salient one. Whether it's really strategically salient, we'll see, but certainly politically salient. Um, I think the reason why so many people immediately grasped for, at least implicitly, the covert action analogy uh, is that famously the bin Laden raid, which feels like it's entirely on point with this, uh, as a kind of a complex and confusing formality, had been framed as a Title 50 covert action with the then director of the CIA stating this took place under my ultimate direction, even though it was actually, in operational terms, it was uh, you know, Admiral McRaven and, and the SEALs who conceived and implemented the operation and conducted the operation itself. In that case, there's lots of theories about, you know, so why was that? Was that sort of a way of making sure that CIA, which did so much of the manhunting that led to that operation, got proper public credit? Was it, I think this is at least as important, uh, was it that if you're going to intrude into a part of Pakistan proper to Abbottabad, then you absolutely want the option of deniability in case things get kind of squirrely along the way. And therefore, it really was wise as a policy matter to frame it in Title 50 terms, kind of take the edge off of it, reduce the extent to which it, formally speaking, constituted an overt military intrusion into uh, a central part of Pakistan. All those things explain why that formality was done there. Um, there is not the slightest indication that something of the like kind was done here. This appears to have been militarily conducted, yeah. certainly informed by the CIA. Um, and so there, there, there is no obligation whatsoever in the law, nope. nor, nor does, does there need to be, that, no. it, that there be any advance uh, notification or otherwise uh, running to Congress. Now, as to the Russians being notified, I thought that was a really unfortunate element for people to bring into the conversation because it, it, it aggravates the, the boy who cried wolf risk when people, there, there's so much to criticize the administration for vis-a-vis Russia. And I think we need to be rigorous and sticking to the stuff that's you know, relatively clear. Right. It would, have been, it would have been strategically unwise to not to not notify Russia. In fact, it would have been tactically dangerous right. because this uh, the helicopters had to overfly areas in which the Russians had right. military control of the airspace. Right. Of course, they were notified. It would have been crazy if that's true. That and that they've reported on the route. It seems to have gone right over the middle of the country. So, um, so leave the Russians out of this one. I no. I, so my my view is is process foul, not legal foul. Right. Like my view is that like you know it's not about what the law requires, it's about what's best practices. And that, you know, in a context like this, 
it would behoove the White House, any White House, to make sure that the relevant congressional leadership is informed, not because they have to be, but just because these are important. It's not that it's not that it's a military operation, it's that it's an important military operation. So, you know, my reaction is less that, that any law was was transgressed here, absolutely not, or that even informing the Russians was a problem. I don't think it was, right? Just that, like, I would like a scenario where the White House just, as a matter of course, thought it was appropriate to notify, you know, the gang of eight at the very least when it had these kinds of sensitive military, but military with some intelligence infusion operations. So I... I- I roughly agree with the framing, but I don't actually think there's anything wrong with not giving Congress advance notification at all. What I would, what no, I would briefing after the fact, but briefing after the fact, sure. So, but I don't think, I think as a matter of interbranch courtesy, right. once the operation's complete and you're going to make a big public announcement about it, I think it is in fact appropriate to uh, to on a bipartisan basis yep. brief the right people. That said, in the current climate, it is easy to imagine why you might try to squeeze the timing such that the notification and the sort of, hey, come over to the White House, we have something to share with you. And by the way, you're still in this room, and I'm sharing this with you, in five seconds from now, the president's going in there to talk to the press about it, leaving no window for anyone on either side of the aisle to sort of steal the thunder by leaking the information, sort of saying like, hey, this thing has happened. I get it. I mean, Washington's such a snake pit right now. Although, um, although I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't congressional Democrats who leaked everything. It was the, it was the Kurds, right? I mean, right. The, I mean, the, the, we knew everything. Saturday I'm not remotely night. suggesting the Democrats would. Yeah. And I meant to say, like, I wouldn't want to tell the Republican or Democratic members of Congress anything about this until I felt like it was time to go ahead and go public with it. There's nothing really gained other than courtesy for them to be the first to know, right? There's no sort of window you need to leave space for congressional action because we're talking about a fait accompli already. So anyways, um, there. if we end up with some detainees, it turns out, out of this, that will be super interesting because, of course, we are told that the only detainees we ended up with as a result of the betrayal of our Kurdish allies and the rapid bugging out uh, of both them and us from certain areas, we ended up with the two guys known as the Beatles. Uh, placeholder here, it's uh, time to start doing our John Doe count the weeks to see what's happening. But um, there's been not a whisper that I've seen in anything in the public record about what's happening. I speculated when we first brought this up that what's going on is that we're waiting to see how the UK Supreme Court rules on the extent to which uh, the Home Office can provide information supporting the prosecution to the United States. And if, if that goes favorably, then I expect pretty quickly we'll see them brought into the Eastern District of Virginia. If it goes unfavorably, I have no idea whether we, we, we can make our case or not. I don't know if we depend on the Brits for that or not. If we can't, if it goes unfavorably or right. for any reason we don't bring them in, right. they're just military detainees who just happen not to be held at Gitmo, but happen to be held in theater and or there will adja- be some messy theater habeas, adjacent. And there will be some messy habeas litigation. Exactly. And so maybe we've got a few more people okay. that are more likely to be in that pot. Um, should we, should we actually use that as a as an excuse to speaking of messy habeas litigation? Yep. And then we'll, we'll save, uh, we'll Abdul save, we'll save, uh, uh, Cuccinelli Palooza for, for, yeah, we'll do that. Well, that'll transition nicely from Trump Landy along, yeah. along the way. So, um, so there was a, a decision, what, last Friday? I lost, I, I can't, days I think are, it was on Friday. Together. So new DC, uh, Judge DC, Sullivan, right? Yeah. DC District Court, um, in a case, uh, captioned Abdul Razak versus Trump. This is actually, um, the Hadi al-Iraqi case, um, Al-Iraqi, just to remind everybody, is the 
defendant in the third of the three pending military commission trials at Guantanamo. We talk a lot about the first two. Yeah, we don't talk much about this one, but um, here's an interesting issue. So there's just, you know, first two, Al-Nashiri, Cole Bomber, right, 9-11 trial. Right. Al-Iraqi so is not the same level. Right, because he hasn't been, he hasn't, he's not being prosecuted in connection with one of the flashy uh, terrorist attacks. Which, of course, raises its own question because he's being prosecuted principally for conspiracy, right? So here again, we have the lingering question about whether the military commissions can try offenses that are not recognized as international war crimes. Um, He has brought, uh, um, this is a pretrial petition. It's kind of a collateral issue. It's not about the merits. Uh, Well, he has a couple of, it's not about the merits, it's not about the the straight up merits of the jurisdictional question, but he does have a, a series of challenges some to his the conditions of his confinement. That's what I mean by this isn't about the war crime. Tr- this but he does. I mean, there's also the equal protection discussion in in this opinion at the back. I mean, oh, okay. right? Yeah, Sullivan yeah. abstains. I mean, so there are two. Yeah, big, yeah, right, right. So Sullivan deals with two big issues in this opinion. He rejects one. He abstains on the other. Okay. Right. Um, so he rejects Abdul Razak's claim that his Eighth Amendment rights were being violated because of various features of the conditions of his confinement, including forced. Hydration, forced nutrition, etc. I felt like the gravamen of his complaint was he's claiming I have this severe back pain yep. issues and I am I'm being treated cruelly under the Eighth Amendment because they're de- deliberately indifferent to my need for medical care. And I think it's actually quite remarkable and, and kind of condemning of, of the, the that attempt that th- this is a motion to dismiss where all the allegations were taken as true and accepted inferences drawn in favor of him. And the court said by his own account, the government clearly is in fact treating him and is clearly not indifferent. It, it sounds it didn't it didn't say it was a frivolous argument, but it's a it's a pretty sharp rejection because this was this wasn't an evidentiary determination. This is a determination that his own account just sort of self refutes. So I guess you know I, you know at the risk of disagreeing with you, um, right? I, I I think it's important to put the claim into the context in which Judge Sullivan analyzed it, which is. Um, the D.C. Circuit in the Amr case back in, I think, 2014 um, held that these kinds of conditions challenges should be analyzed under Turner versus Safley. Turner versus Safley is the big Supreme Court case from, I think, 1987 um, about the sort of how you balance right the penological interests on the government side with the detainee's interest. Um, and I think I'm not speaking out of school when I say Turner versus Safley is very pro-government. Um, there is a serious question about whether Turner versus Safley, which usually only applies to people who have been convicted and are in prison, right, should also apply on all fours to this kind of preventive or in Abdul Razak's case, pretrial detention. Um, and the DC Circuit in Amr says, yes, I think there are reasons to dispute that, but that once you're in the sort of Turner versus Safley mode of analyzing conditions claims, yeah, the government's going to win most of them, right? Because the the legitimate penological interest is usually going to you know prevail over whatever as as long as the prisoner can't show some kind of structural deliberate indifference on the government's part, he's not going to be able to win. So the idea would be that if this was sort of uh, some other setting in which he was bringing more of a traditional type claim in a traditional civil litigation setting, it was just a regular twelve b six analysis. You're saying maybe the government wouldn't have gotten so far. Maybe later on they'd win at summary judgment, but they might not have gotten a motion to dismiss. That's my concern, right? Yeah. Is that is that you know if this were if this were a pretrial civil detainee and not military detention at Guantanamo? Yeah. Because um, I I think there are cases that Turner doesn't apply to pretrial civil. You know, right? To, when you're when you're in jail before trial because you can't make bail or there's no bail. Yeah. Right. The, you are you are more protected 
under the Constitution than someone who's been convicted and is in prison because you're in a different position relative to that person, right? Yeah, so I think I think all that's right as in terms of the legal framework, and it's an important nuance for people to appreciate that the doctrine is actually more government favorable on the dismissal question in that setting. I still felt like the way that the court talked about the factual allegations really kind of boiled down to, look, just on this account, the on, on the plaintiff's own account, the, the petitioners, um, the erstwhile plaintiff, if you would, um, on their own account, they did, in fact, get medical care. And just these facts don't add up to what they're describing. But to me, that's not as interesting as the fact that it just was taken as a given that, of course, of course, we're allowed to apply the Eighth Amendment here. There was no no questioning of whether or not the, the protection, if the facts had been otherwise or had been alleged otherwise, could constitute an Eighth Amendment claim. It, does this in any way suggest anything about other contexts at Gitmo where there seems to be fierce contestation over whether anything other than the suspension clause in the Constitution is applicable? Or is there some reason why, oh, no, the Eighth Amendment clearly applies here, but we have no idea about the due process clause there? So I, you know, I took Judge Sullivan to be saying, assuming without deciding, right, that, yeah. that without getting into the messy question of assuming, uh, of holding— yeah that these prisoners have Eighth Amendment rights. Um, but I could imagine... But he didn't really say that, though. Right? He, really just, that. he actually... It's like functionally he assumes without deciding, but or you could say well, he just seems to have decided. I thought there was a footnote somewhere where he makes some oh, noise. Oh, is that right? Okay, maybe but, I missed that. But, but in any event, I still think, and I've said this before, and I will say it for as long as I can, um, that there is a difference to me between offensive and defensive invocations of constitutional rights. Yep. And that Abdul Razak is not similarly situated to all the other Guantanamo detainees because he's a defendant in a military commission. And so insofar as he can avail himself of defensive protections that we might not necessarily afford to the the other detainees who are in non-criminal, pers- you know, who are in just the pure habeas detention side— I think that's a plausible ground of distinction if we ever had to go there, right? That, yeah. that you know, for example, I think there's an argument that at least some modicum of Sixth Amendment rights and Fifth Amendment rights would right. apply well, right. that would follow. in the context of the military commissions that might not get you anything on the habeas side. Right, that's yeah. that's the distinction I think the courts might ultimately have to draw. Of course, it's shocking that here we are, October 2019. No, it's just ridiculous. And we still aren't anywhere. <laughs> so ridiculous. Along that so ridiculous. Um, speaking of ridiculous, and being here in October 2019, should we talk about the still vacant office of the Secretary of Homeland Security? So what is? I can't this? believe we're doing this again. I, I, I cannot believe this. Uh, it's probably not the last time. Oh in God. fact, I think it's guaranteed not to be the end of this story. Oh. We have a new sustaining member, and that is uh, the empty chair. Uh, should we, we should have like an like Elijah, an honorary empty chair in our, in our podcast recording. So, so um, the New York Times has tried eh. to convey eh. uh, news of a new legal theory that somehow, I guess, is it attributed to OLC? Um, no, it's attributed to the White House, and apparently the Wall That's Street, always a good sign. The Wall Street Journal has, I think, a, a more, I think, um, well sort of piece together version of this so let's do this let's describe what the theory seems to be yeah because I, I, I think critique. the times piece is, is not quite the times piece is a little head scratching on what exactly is going on yeah okay um, what, as best as you construct it what is the new theory of how the president has more discretion than we erstwhile thought so so let's start at the beginning right and the beginning is since april 10th 2019 the office of the secretary of homeland security has been vacant 
Um, and that date is relevant because we are reaching the end of the 210-day period under which someone can serve as the acting secretary. After that, someone has to be able to turn the lights off, but they don't get to call themselves acting secretary, which might have legal implications. So the reason why this is all coming to a head now is because if the president wants to name another acting secretary, he's running out of time to do it. Um, Kevin McAleenan has been the acting secretary since April 10th. He is um, the Senate-confirmed commissioner of CBP, Customs and Border Protection. Um, and to be clear, I don't once once the president basically pushed Claire Grady, the undersecretary of management, out, um, there was no obstacle to McAleenan becoming the next acting secretary. The scuttlebutt has been all along that the White House is really interested in naming Ken Cuccinelli, he of no former federal government experience of any kind, as acting secretary, um, and that the first sort of tentative step in this direction was earlier this summer when they named, when they sort of bootstrapped him into acting director of CIS, Custom, uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, by creating a brand new staff position and decreeing that to be the deputy. Um, okay. So here's the problem. Under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, I think we talked about this before, there's no question, there's no way to get Cuccinelli to acting secretary. Under the FBRA, he's not the deputy secretary, which cuts out one possibility. He's not Senate confirmed. Second possibility, he didn't serve at DHS for at least 90 of the 365 days before Nielsen resigned. There goes the he's, federal He's barred by law. Well, or I wouldn't say that. I would say the FBRA cannot be the way to do it. Okay, good. Right? Um, the DHS succession statute, such as it is, and this is, if you're, you know, if you want to play along at home, it's 6 USC section 113. Um gives the secretary in section 113G2 um, the power to prescribe a further order of succession beyond what the statute mandates. And the statute only mandates three. The statute mandates secretary, deputy secretary, undersecretary for management. All three of those are currently vacant. So the rest of it gets filled out if this power is activated. By the secretary. Now, Got it. Um, if you read 113G2 carefully, it says the secretary may name such, quote, such other officers. Well, who are the such other officers? I think it's quite clear that such other officers are the officers referred to in the rest of section 113, um, which includes deputy secretary, assistant secretaries, lots of other people. One of the offices that is named in 113 um, is the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction, or CWMD in DHS terminology, um, an office that is currently vacant um, and is actually held on an acting basis by a gentleman by the name of um, Gary, Gary Rasko. Ross. Gary Rasko. I think it's Rasko. I may be mispronouncing okay. it. Um, First, uh, just side note, I don't know why there's an acting assistant secretary, because one of the features of this position that I think has drawn it to the White House's attention is it doesn't require Senate confirmation. Right. So, so there's, why is there, if, if Gary Rasko is, you know, in charge of this office, why not just name him the acting secretary as opposed to the acting, or yeah. sorry, why not name him the assistant secretary as opposed to the acting assistant secretary? Right. So he was named acting secretary? Oh, yes. Right. Or no 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 he was named acting assistant secretary or, or I don't know if he was named acting assistant secretary if he just he was the deputy. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Secretary. Like maybe the answer to your question is he floated into it when it became vacant. And no one's noticed. Or no one cares. Yeah. Well, there's that. Um, so here's the best I can understand the theory. The theory here's how I think the White House is envisioning this going down. Step one: 
Makalinen, before he leaves as acting secretary, mm-hmm. um, prescribes a new order of succession. Is there a current one from a prior secretary? Not that we're aware of. Okay. Um, so there's a there's an executive order on DHS succession um, that was promulgated by President Obama at the end of his administration. Right. Um, the executive order doesn't even mention the assistant secretary for counter and weapons of mass destruction because that position didn't exist. Right. Well, why doesn't that control over the hypothetical so new secretary issued? It, it presumably would, but it also presumably could just be repealed by President sure. Trump. And yeah. so assuming this is the White House is doing, right. here's the process I think would happen. Step one, revoke Obama executive right. order. Right, so that's that's step one. Step two, have McAleenan By issue- the way, should we, be provi- should we be providing this roadmap? <laughs> I think they figured it out. Yeah, have they? All right. Um, so, so step one, revoke the old. And by EO. the way, if they listen to this podcast, like awesome. Well, yeah, I think it's great. So, look, they need all the help they can get. All right. So, so step, step one, revoke step the Obama two. EO. Step two, McAleenan issues a new succession order under his authority under one thirteen G two, and lo, you know, look what happens under the new succession order. The assistant secretary for counter weapons to the top stuff. of the list. Well, so floats to the fourth position. Well, right. The right. one. The one. McAleenan has one no authority. Yeah. has no authority to change the top three because that's set by that's statute. statute. Yeah. Um, step three. Remarkable. Ken Cuccinelli is named, is, is appointed, right? The assistant secretary for Because anybody um, could be appointed to that. You could. I could. And indeed, you and I actually would both have a far better argument for being qualified to head the office of countering weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> you might. I don't know that I know what they Ken do. Ken Cuccinelli. So what is wrong with that model apart from you not wanting Ken Cuccinelli to get that position? So I think there are, there are two major problems with this model. One is statutory or model. I don't, it's not a model. Yeah. With this, this Fakakta loophole. Um, sure, episode title will be something about you know the assistant secretary of, I'm of not this sure. podcast. Uh, yeah, this is, I don't know. There's something there. So, so I'm not sure I'd characterize this so much as a loophole as just there's a lot of flexibility given by law. But I'm not sure there is. To, so this okay, is, so this that's is where I'm going, right? So all of this depends on how one reads 113G2. And let me pull it up just so that I'm not you know, doing this from memory. Right, so in 113G2 is the statutory source of the secretary's authority to change this fourth tier onward order of succession, where the right. first three tiers, which are basically not in play right now, they're locked in by statute. So all the action is who's number four. So 113G2, notwithstanding chapter 33 of Title V, editor's note, that's the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. Yeah, okay, notwithstanding right. the FVRA. The secretary may designate such other officers of the department in further order of succession to serve as acting secretary. And I, you know, I agree that the assistant secretary for countering weapons of mass destruction um, is such is is one of the such other, other officers. officers, right? But who's the secretary for purposes of that provision, right? So it is usually the case that statutes that refer to a secretary. Um, the, that the duties are delegated, right, to the acting secretary in circumstances in which the secretary's office is vacant. It is not always the case. And there are some important exceptions. Um, some of those exceptions are expressed. So, for example, the Presidential Succession Act of 1947 says expressly that acting that, that you can't be um, in the presidential line of succession if you weren't Senate confirmed. And right. so in acting, say, Attorney General, who had not been Senate confirmed. So Congress knows how to expressly limit the secretary to the Senate confirmed secretary when it wants to. And so the question is whether it meant to here. Now, um, 
Ordinarily, I would say no, right? That ordinarily, I would assume that statutory references to the secretary include those lawfully yeah, exercising authority. That's the whole point of the That's right? what it means to lawfully exercise the secretary's authority. Here's what makes G2 different. It refers both to the secretary and the acting secretary as distinct entities, right? So let me read it again. Yep. The secretary may designate such other officers of the department in further order of succession to serve as acting secretary. I think there's a pretty good argument, not, not a slam dunk argument, but a pretty good argument that the distinct reference to the secretary at the beginning of the clause and the putative future acting secretary at the end of the clause is a meaningful distinction and that Congress could be said to have limited the authority to promulgate a new order of succession to a Senate-confirmed secretary. Now, the text, I think, is ambiguous. Yeah, so I got to say, I'm, I'm looking at this yeah. for the first time. I hadn't dug into this, and so I'm just reacting. I think I go the other way on this. I agree that it's ambiguous, and I, I certainly agree that your reading is a plausible reading, but I'm not sure I find it the most appealing reading on First Encounter for me. And my my theory underlying that is that the model here is assuming that the secretary doing the designation, the one who's crafting the list of who gets to be number four and onward, is at point in time one, looking ahead to the time where later there might be a vacancy. At point in time two, in the unknown future, we're anticipating that there will that the secretary's out. There will need to be an acting secretary, but the separation in time between point in one two time one and point in time two, which is kind of absent in our fact pattern here, which is why this seems so squirrely. I don't think they had that in mind. I don't think they had in mind that these couldn't be this the same people. I don't think they were anticipating this sort of scenario and trying in any purposeful way to limit the ability to issue the designation for the unknown future to a situation where you've got a Senate-confirmed secretary, not an acting secretary. In other words, if we imagine no shenanigans and a bunch of highly trustworthy folks, all of whom we thought were in this for good government, civic virtue reasons, etc. I know, but imagine. And what we've got is someone who's the acting secretary and, and we, we needed for whatever reason to tweak the, the succession list, it wouldn't strike me as contrary to the statute for the person who's duly acting with the power yeah. of the secretary to use one of those powers, which is to issue a succession list. I think that the whole problem is we don't trust that what's going on. We think the whole thing here is this this dodgy sort of way of trying to, to circumvent the rules, but I think the rules may allow for it. So I think there are two other problems besides just that everything is done. Okay, good. Yeah. Pull me back from the ledge, Steve. So problem number one is I think there's a perfectly reasonable argument that Congress actually would have been very worried about the bootstrapping that your reading of the statute would allow. Um, and so, for example, right, that the um, I'm acting secretary, I know I'm leaving, right? Like I know I'm time limited or I have another position or whatever. Um, and so the last thing I'm doing on the way out the door is deciding for myself, right, who the next acting secretary is going to be. Um, that that actually, you know, there are reasons why Congress might think that there's a difference between giving a Senate-confirmed secretary that authority because in theory, the Senate-confirmed secretary holds the office, right, on a permanent basis until he or she resigns or is fired versus an acting secretary who by law, right, is time limited in the position. So, right, just that there's a bootstrapping concern even when you have noble, you know, team playing actors in these positions that I think one could reasonably think Congress would have worried about because it allows for sort of... Like a daisy chain of acting secretaries? Is that Not just concern? a daisy chain, but also like, you know, um, why... I think there's a pretty good argument that Congress would want, right, someone who had been accountable to the Senate 
to be someone who has the power to rewrite the order of succession within an executive department. I, I think it's a policy argument that makes a ton of sense. I just, I'm not sure that that's what they were trying to do here. But so then there's the second argument, which is constitutional avoidance, um, which is that, you know, one of these days, the Supreme Court is going to decide that there's a serious constitutional problem, not with the theory of acting cabinet officers, okay. but with how this has all been abused. And in two different respects, one with regard to the timing um, and just how long these positions have been vacant and how the they've been vacant in circumstances where there was no ob- no obstacle other than politics, right, to the confirmation of qualified individuals or even the naming of other people, right, to the position. Um, but two, um, also, what, you know, the timing is one, one part of the concern. I think the second part of the Supreme Court's concern might also be um, the potential for abuse and manipulation by cutting the Senate out of the loop, right? Justice Thomas has already basically said this in his concurring opinion in the Southwest General case a couple of years ago. If you think there's a serious potential constitutional problem with rewriting, with, with reading this provision to allow the acting secretary to rewrite the order of succession whenever he feels like it, right, beyond the top three, um, then you might that might be yet a further thumb on the scale of reading the statute to not allow it. So I very much agree that there is a constitutional value uh, that has been that is in the process of being overridden in repeated instances in in relation to the role the constitutional role of the Senate in in affirming or not the uh, the cabinet uh, officers. And that there's no question that Trump is trying to have maximally pliable people by circumventing that whole machinery, and it's contrary to constitutional values. I'm very concerned about whether there's a judicially manageable standard that at any point could be brought to bear, but but I'm I'm conceding your argument or I'm accepting your argument that there's a constitutional value that then could act as a gravitational pull on the interpretation. I'm not sure it's enough. Yeah. But I can see that argument. I, I, I mean, I there's wonder, risk. There, there's, there's also maybe competing constitutional arguments, uh, kind of pulling the other way. Executive branch uh, discretion to when in a unitary executive environment, um, constitutional values kind of pulling towards more discretion. I think that but, is but a weaker. Put, but, uh, let yeah, me let me play that. Sorry. I think that's weaker because of the centrality in the text of the Senate's role. That's where I was going. So I think I think that the, the if we're trying to first, if we say okay, we're going to have a challenge interpreting an ambiguous statute on this point, can constitutional avoidance or constitutional inflection points pull us one way or the other? I think it's a stronger, it's more of a Jupiter to have the, the Senate's role in confirming pitted against unitary executive notions of, hey, give the president some leeway in appointing people in his own uh, structure. I, but I'm not sure any of that, I'm not sure the constitutional inflection actually is enough to to, to produce uh, the outcome you're describing. But I, I think it's a reasonable argument. But I think I think the contrary view, hate to say it, is is, is reasonable as well. But listen, I mean, I, 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 I freely concede that the argument is not self-evident. But I also think it's worth stressing, this will cause significant litigation risk because unlike Cuccinelli's current job, the secretary, the yeah. acting secretary, you know, puts his or her name on a whole lot of paper right. that affects people. So if they, so, I completely agree with that. And just to underscore the point, um, this is not one that's going to avoid litigation no. because there's all sorts of decision making authority where the the counterparty, the the party that has to really be exercising the authority of the department is the secretary. And if it turns out it's ultra virus because the appointment is illegitimate, then there's a whole raft of things that come unwound after the fact. I don't know that that the administration cares, right? I think they might actually view that all as water on the wheel because it'll be chaos. It'll be the stupid courts getting in the way of things. Once again, 
things that didn't work out can be blamed on other people. It might actually be seen as a plus to have Cuccinelli appointed in this indirect way and then have it all unwind you know, a year later. And, of course, the name of all the games right now, the name of all the games for the administration is to get to the next election. And so if this enables um, a whole bunch of fresh talking points and narratives around Cuccinelli to be created and and distracting discussions about whether the process of appointment, legalistic discussions, which we think are right and valuable, but nonetheless can be characterized and spun, they might view all that as, eh, that's no reason not to proceed. might even be a reason to proceed this way. Maybe. The only thing I would say in response is um, – if you've been relying so heavily on actings, I'm not sure how enthusiastic you should be about giving the Supreme Court a vehicle for actually pushing back, right? That that this is not, you know, the, the, the con law here does not break down on strictly partisan lines. And, you know, Justice Thomas is already on record about his concerns in this space. I think it's not hard to imagine that this court would not welcome an opportunity, but sort of would would mm. would use a vehicle to sort of say there are there are meaningful constitutional limits to how far you can stretch this. I just why 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 encourage that when and this is I think the last thing I want to say when there are literally hundreds of people eligible to be named acting secretary under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act and an unlimited universe of people eligible to be wait for it nominated. <laughs> To be the yeah. actual Secretary of Homeland Security and confirmed by the Republican-controlled and not exactly hostile Senate. Yeah, I just don't think they care much about that. But they, but and, and and this is and this is my reaction, which is even if I'm John Roberts, right? Maybe I think the White House should care a little more about that, right? Yeah. That, that the separation of powers in this context contemplates a meaningful role for the Senate. And the more we allow these kinds of end runs, the more we are dis- diminishing that process. I, I couldn't agree more, but I think a judicially manageable standard for how you draw a line that then gets implemented. I mean, imagine they issue some such ruling down the road sparked by this occasion. Um, and and so the executive branch is basically told, uh, presumably post-election, right? So assume he's reelected. Um, hey, no more of this. You've now got, I mean, are they going to say like you've got 90 days to make nominations? I mean, they could, right? Yeah. But I somehow don't think they're going to. Well, I mean, there are ways to fix the Federal Vacancies Reform Act to avoid this scenario. Exactly. And that, that I think, is where we should bring it around. Like, w- this is an area that's crying out for some reform yep. to avoid these kinds of scenarios. And there are, I mean, I've, I've, I've been privy to some of the proposals that have been drafted and are being circulated on Capitol Hill. It's just there's no, you know, political willpower in the Senate right now to do it. And I think, you know, much as I, I mean, I, much as I've been critical of lots of things about the Senate lately, this is a context in which uh, this, to me, is the most glaring single institutional failure on the Senate's part over the last two and a half years, which is this is not Congress's prerogative. Yeah, Trump is usurping. It is yeah. the Senate's prerogative. And, you know, I would have thought that, you know, individuals who care as deeply as they purport to and profess to about the traditions of the Senate and the unique constitutional role of the Senate would actually stand up a little bit when they don't bypass care. like no, this. No, they don't care about that as much as they care about elections. Well, there is that. Yeah. Although, I mean, would it really hurt? Like, I mean, if Mitch McConnell says, you know, I'm I'm troubled by all of these end runs around the confirmation process, do you think that would have electoral ramifications? I, I feel like that no, would if help him. If he says that, it's meaningless. It, words are wind, as I read somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it Instead, it's if he did something about it, right? If yeah. they leveraged actual, you know, 
budgetary decisions or or such confirmations as there are in a way that actually forced the hand, yeah, then there'd be then there'd be hell to pay, right? Once the White House got mad. So And all of this for someone who has no relevant experience, um, who is not confirmable even by the Republicans in the Senate and who is about as anti-immigrant a government officer as we've seen in a long time. You're describing these things like the White House would view them as negatives as opposed to the essential qualifications they're looking for. It's a sad, sad state of affairs. Um, Let's stay in Trumplandia and wrap the substance by a quick check-in with uh, impeachment palooza. Um, We've got a couple of developments, uh, one directly relating to the impeachment. So, I know you very much got the Charlie Brown kicking the football feel for this one. So after all this time of trying, so the, the, the Trump administration main line of uh, defense and the f- maybe the first line of a defense in depth has been to question the procedural alleged irregularity both of initiating the inquiry and then not having a vote and then the process elements of how the actual testimonial sessions are are playing out and now we're seeing the the house leadership giving way on these points well so i would not frame it as giving way i would frame it as as um springing the trap that they laid for the republicans all right yeah so make to present the case that this is this is clever jujitsu so I think um, whether this was originally the plan or just came to be the plan as the rhetoric was ratcheted up, right? Um, Pelosi, the, look how the narrative has changed. So for, for, for a couple of weeks, the narrative was, I can't believe you're not having a vote. Never mind that nothing requires a vote, as we've discussed, right? right? So Pelosi says, fine, you know what? We'll have a vote. Right. And when, and now the rhetoric has shifted to, well, you can't change things midstream. It's a mistrial. It's fruit of the poisonous tree. Um, those are not applicable arguments to sure. this context. No, right? that, that, like, so. So. Right. I mean, it, I don't know if this was the original plan. Like, I don't know if maybe Pelosi didn't want to have a vote because she was worried about having to put like, you know, Democrats in swing districts next year on record. But now, right, the vote looks like a really clever move strategically because the, all the Republicans can say is, you did what we asked you to do and, and it's not enough. I think that they got lot, the Republicans got yeah. lots of political mileage on the there's a tug of war, right? There's a yeah. rope over a deep, nasty mud pit, Democrats on one side, Republicans on the other. And the rope is is about whether and to what extent the whole process will be perceived as legitimate. And the Republicans by whom? By the public at large. But like, I mean, this is... You you don't think that's what they're fighting over? This is where I'm stuck, right? Which is what... I mean, this is, there was a blow-up on on, on a listserv on last night where one of the sort of, to me, more principled, you know, not progressives on the list was talking about how no one trusts... Like, you know, quote, no one trusts Adam Schiff, unquote. And, And my response to that is, you know, first of all, he doesn't mean no one. He means Republicans. Right. And second, what... Democratic chair of a major House committee right now, would Republicans, quote, trust? I mean, this is just throwing... Well, I, I don't know about any of that. I just know that there is clearly... I, I want to stay focused on this. So there's a battle. Maybe the Democrats don't want to view it this way, but certainly the, the Trump administration and allied strategy is to try to delegitimize things. This is... I don't think this is controversial. This is exactly what happened with the Mueller investigation. No, no, I, agree, I agree that's okay. their strategy. So, so, so the strategy is to try to cast as much doubt on the legitimacy of it, make it sound as partisan as they can make it sound. But they're make Anyway, and make point. it sound corrupt. And so their first attempt was to say, hey, there's no you know, make up the idea that there's supposed to be a triggering vote. Right. And they milked that for a while. It was totally made up. Right. Um, but nonetheless, they got a lot of mileage. Plenty of people who 
don't know any of these details, hear this, and it sounds sensible to them, and it does sound like, wait, why isn't there a vote? So they rode that horse for a while. That horse is a tired horse. It couldn't get him very far, but they got some distance with it. So I don't know I don't know that there's really any trap. They, they kind of got some mileage, and they, and they got the added benefit now of saying, see, in the end, they proved we were right by holding the vote. They might have been better off right. insisting that they don't need to do this vote. All right, but 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 now, but then, so then the question is: so now what's the argument, right? So I think I think they're not going to get mileage out of the mistrial through the poisonous tree nonsense, right? Yeah. They'll, they'll, so so the successor to the horse, that horse is um, there's like a permanent taint that doesn't really make a lot of sense. No. Um, none. But what's what's underlying that is the claim that the earlier stage, it's not just there wasn't the triggering vote. They're making these process arguments about how, why aren't more people from Congress on the Republican side having access, Which, even though way, lots of them, lots of them have access. That's just a lie. Including some who had access and represented right. as if they Cong- didn't. I mean, Congressman Yo-Yo, right? Uh, not Yo-Yo. Yo-Ho? Yo-Ho. <laughs> That's a Freudian slip. Okay. Was it Congressman Yoho? Um, One of the Republicans who's on the committee, who's allowed to be in the room, who has access to to all of this, claims that he's being excluded. And it's like, stop lying. Just just stop lying. So here's the thing. Is is this too much to ask? No, it's not too much to ask. But, and yet, so there's there's claims that are going to have general resonance because they sound like part of fair process, loosely understood about access to cross-examine things, keeping things in a situation where there's counsel. Those themes have been getting hit really, really hard. And to the extent, as I understand it, the, the proposal on the table in the House is to, in fact, offer some of those elements to add them to the process when they're not actually required at the stage. But they're giving ground on that. And that retroactively legitimizes or tends to legitimize the complaint about the earlier stages. I disagree. You don't th- okay. You don't think they're going to try to the Republicans aren't going to say, "See, we complained wait, wait, that wait, they wait, had Bobby, these you're, prior you're, you're, proceedings." You're, you're conflating things. You're talking about what the Republicans are going to say versus what is actually like a reasonable argument, right? I'm, I'm not trying to talk about what's a reasonable argument. I'm trying no, to describe did, what yes, the attack the is going to be. Yes, the Republicans are absolutely going to say, "Look, you know, now they they, they, yeah. they they admit that this was a sham." And for the audience, they're trying to influence, which is not people who are on the left or who are otherwise against Trump. They're trying to reach the people who have been supporting Trump all along and keep them where they are not letting them get pulled into the to the other side i think that argument's gonna resonate with them i mean but this is my problem everything's gonna resonate with them right because these are people who have been conditioned by the media culture by you know the echo chamber that they've chosen to live in to believe every single one of the conspiracy theories and so you know what why why are the why should it be you know in what is the scenario in which those people are actually all of a sudden going to believe that the Democrats are playing fairly and that the president should be impeached? I, so I, I, don't I think see we're. It. I think we're probably. When I talk about that audience, I think I started us down the path of treating them too much like a single block. And what we've really got is a spectrum, which has plenty of people who are, as you just described, who, who are living in a disinformation environment that they're kind of trapped in a cage that they don't themselves see necessarily. Um, but there's a lar- there's a some number of persons who are further down the spectrum towards being open-minded, who are absolutely not believing every single conspiracy, but who generally don't trust the left 
are concerned about what might happen if Trump were to be removed and are therefore possibly in play going either direction. And I think for some people in that audience, everything that tends to legitimize criticisms of the process so far will have some resonance. And so that's useful for those who are trying to defend the president here. Uh, to be clear, I think that the process was fine before. I think that at the pre at the pre-impeachment stage that this is supposed to be there are no, no such rules as the, as have been put forward i agree with all that but i think as a political matter i think the republican strategy has been reasonably successful so far and i'm afraid i hate to say it but i'm afraid that that giving ground on some of these issues is going to give them a little bit more weight in those critiques i guess i, I but as opposed to not giving ground I right mean, no it's a damned I mean, if you do damned if you don't perhaps i mean i mean i think you know now i mean now everyone's trying to trot out all these procedural differences i mean the house democrats released a chart last night that shows the that puts the you know the early nixon hearings next to the Clinton hearings, yep. next to the Trump hearings, and shows how none of the procedural oh, things are... So, no, look, this, but, but, you know, but this is my point, yeah. is to what extent should the Democrats feel any you know compulsion to try to satisfy people who will not be satisfied, to try to you know appeal to people who just, you know, like, this is... But that's my point, that there are people in the middle who maybe... Are there? There's got to be some. I, I don't think... What, it, I don't where think, is the I don't think it's people is, exist? I, look, I can't pull out polling data for you no, no, from the side of the table I don't here. want to be hostile. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm not my hostility hostile. is not directed I know you. that. I know that. But I can't obviously defend that yeah. point when you frame it that way, um, not without prep. But I'm convinced there are is, in fact, some amount of play here. If it's really as, as completely Manichaean barbell-shaped as, as that, then this whole thing is just kabuki and doesn't really matter, and all that matters is, is numbers. Maybe that's the answer. I will say that the uh, there's an interesting analogy here. This this sort of attempt to say that contrary to the low process approach that was perfectly fine in the past, it's kind of it's it's sort of moving the goalpost to insist that somehow it's not legitimate for the process to have this kind of not courtroom style process now. Uh, it's interesting to kind of compare that because it resonates a little bit. It's a distinguishable, but it reminds me of how the battles in the detention context where the government was using some early on very limited process, almost non-process approaches to vetting detention in the post 9-11 period. And then over time started adding in layers of process and ultimately you get to habeas and all the rest. And a lot of the debate along the way was, hey, in past conflicts, there's never been any process you're trying to bring in these additional procedural elements now. In that context, it was very interesting because they weren't precisely analogous settings. There were reasons things were different from one setting to the other. Here, it's the same thing as Nixon, Johnson, etc. It's just impeachment. The, the the legal framework that's that's in play, it should be more relevant than in the detention context that past examples have only had so much process, right? I guess that's what I'm saying. All right. I think we've really just, you know, gone round in circles without moving. Anyway, the there's ball also a couple of litigation developments we should mention, right? That so Chief Judge Howell um, sided with the House in its effort to obtain at least some of the hitherto redacted grand jury materials related to the Mueller investigation. And this uh, is wanted by whom? Uh, the House Judiciary Committee, yeah. right? As part of the as part of the, the right. investigation. So the so the administration really does not want that information passing through. Yep. Um, the the DC Circuit has issued an administrative stay of that decision, um, but you know yeah. only for long enough to give the DC Circuit time to decide whether to issue a real stay right. of that decision. I think the the briefing on the stay is probably going to be due sometime next week. So some people, as often happens with administrative stays, 
kind of get assumptions that this reflects a merits view. Nope. I think we both agree that, that this has nothing to do with the merits. This is a classic uh, uh, stay of the status quo, preserve the status quo type of measure. It doesn't yield any insights into which way it's going to go. Um, so that's going on. There was oral argument in the Second Circuit in the Cyrus Vance case. Um, the government has now filed a petition for rehearing on Bonk in the D.C. Circuit in the Mazars case. So, you know, lots of developments along that front. Um, there was Lieutenant Colonel Vinman's testimony, right, which I think is, is yeah. not to be overlooked. Uh, in well, this. And, and, it, and we, we must say we're duty-bound to say in the, the horrible yes. treatment yes. of that soldier. In, including, in by, many, including by a fellow law professor, John Yu, who basically accused him of espionage on national television. He he has a public statement that was posted on his Facebook page saying that that's not what he meant. If, I know, but that he felt it was misconstrued. Now, he, he may have misspoken, but at least we should give him the credit of saying, like, that's not what I meant. I understand that, but his, his explanation for what he really meant is incoherent. Right, like the, perhaps, like his explanation for what he was trying to say wouldn't make any sense about how you know it was espionage for the Ukrainians. Like, just it's. I, I, so I saw some of that come to. I'm not sure I 100 percent agree with that. So I, I, Susan Hennessy had said like, well, this, his explanation just shows he doesn't understand what espionage is. I think was sort of started that thread. It, my understanding is that the, the setup for his comment on the Laura Ingraham show was that. There, there was a, uh, a factual claim made, right? The claim was that Ukrainian government officials had been reaching out to him to get guidance or input from him on how to handle their upcoming interactions with Trump. I think it was at that level. And so as to that, I think then John, you said that, you know, this sounds like espionage, which was taken in immediately by many people to be a claim that, that Vindman was in get, acting traitorously or as a spy. And then John comes out later and says, no, that's not what I meant. What I meant was that the Ukrainians were making an, were engaging in espionage. Um, and so the criticism would be like, well, that's not espionage. That's, that's diplomacy or that's just government interactions. That sounds roughly right to me, but I don't think it's crazy. It, it may have been really poorly framed by him, but I suppose the best face you could put on it is what he meant to say was, he feels like the Ukrainians were trying, perhaps improperly, to get someone within our government to give them advice. You got, Either, you got, you got to squeeze. You got to squint pretty hard to read I, it. That I way. don't think it. I don't. I think it's not that hard to imagine that he misspoke a little bit in a context of live TV. But he was hardly the only person on TV, like attacking or seemingly attacking Vindman's character. Well, so, so that's really what. That's the reason I'm going. I'm not. I don't have a brief to defend John. Yeah. You, yeah. but I think it's a distraction to try to nail him for this when there's so many people who are making outright anti-Semitic characterizations, outright gross nativist. All kinds of, like, he's not born here, that guy, what's he even doing there? Deep state claims, everything that's an attack on this guy, it's also an American and gross what they're doing. And and I don't think we need to try to parse John use words, which Fair enough. Uh, I don't think, I frankly don't think John was trying to go there. I, I, I don't I don't give him the benefit of the doubt the way that I think you do. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, that reaction is why I'm not sure who's left to be convinced, who isn't already convinced. I think when we when we dwell in Twitter space and what's on Fox News and all that, it absolutely seems that way. But I think that there's still a, a great number of people in this country who are people of goodwill and reasonable sense who spend their days thinking about their families, their friends, and their jobs, and their problems, and their health, and other deals. And this whole thing just makes them want to throw up. And sometimes I think, you know, that that's how I feel about it. <laughs> this podcast makes me want to throw up. <laughs> this world. Yeah, well, there's that. All right, can we light it up? Can we go frivolous? Please. 
All right, friends. Uh, let the. Can let we the, go back to politics? The, the, right? Isn't that Hamilton, right? Can we go back to politics? To politics yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. So, can we get back By to the way, I worked. I, I wrote an op ed the other day where I, I, I worked in the Hamilton reference. Oh, was, you did? What was, was it? I was really hoping I'd get some, some Lynn, Lynn Miranda love, but no. That's um, tough. It was about the 12th Amendment and how the 12th Amendment. It's actually it's impeachment related about how the this whole sort of canard that impeaching the president overturns the results of an election, and I was writing on I wrote not bad expanding on a Twitter thread. This is the time we live in, right? Um, basically, that like it's worth remembering that like that was a distinct possibility before the Twelfth Amendment, right, right? When right. the vice president would often be as Jefferson was to Adams, yeah. the president's principal political rival, and we still have impeachment in the Constitution. And under the tw- after the Twelfth Amendment, it's actually not really a possibility. It's always it's always struck me because so the inc- vice president will be elevated to the presidency. Isn't it one of the most incredible things and in, and in, in reasons to be humble about the wisdom of the, the founders that they they had that arrangement yeah. at all for yeah. as long as they did. Yeah. All right. Anyways, let's let's be frivolous. Uh, first of all, um, World Series. Uh, we had a disagreement at the top of the show about the the magnitude of error, if error it even was. About the umpires, the home plate umpires' judgment call that yeah, Trey Turner was running inside the baseline right. and interfered with the right. ability of Yuli Gurriel to catch yeah. the Peacock's throw. So obviously, everyone go find the video, watch it yourself. I think the following's clear: for most of his way up the line, he was very clearly on the inside. He which all, is allowed to be. Which, I'm not saying it's not, <laughs> but the but the context in which this occurs is he's on he's on a path for being out because for for. Interfering with the, the play at first base, right up to the last second, he does move in, and when he crosses the bag, he's over the bag. The question is, before the last step, did he interfere? Was his placement inside the line interfering with the reasonable chance right. to catch? And it and it matters a lot in the bang bang context of the judgment. Yeah. And it's not a reviewable under the M- MLB rules, right. not reviewable. So it's bang bang assessment, and they not only have contact, but it knocks the first baseman's glove off. Yeah, but the but but not the ball. The ball hit Turner, right? I know, as I know but I'm, I'm as describing he's the, on first, as he's crossing first base. The ball hits him in the back of his right leg. In the bang bang context, what you see is he's in the wrong spot for a long ways, and then the glove you comes said, flying You said off. the wrong spot, so this is where I actually want to be a, sort of a baseball purist for a second, right? The rules do not prohibit running inside the baseline. The rules prohibit running inside the baseline excessively, right? And the whole way down to first, Turner's left foot is periodically on the grass and periodically not. His right foot's basically on the baseline, right? And so I I understand what it looks like to the umpire. That's all I'm getting at. The problem is you can't make that particular call in that moment unless you're sure, Right, like that—that's got that can't be like, a, oh, that's a close one. I'm giving the benefit of the doubt because there are two different things that happen on that play. One, Peacock's throw was bad, right? You're as a pitcher. I was a pitcher. You are trained. You practice over and over again in that exact situation to throw the ball to the second base side of first base. It's so interesting you said that on the announcers last night claimed that you're trained to throw at the runner because you might get exactly this result. That might be how you're trained in the majors. In high school, right, where we don't trust the umpires to be maybe so on the ball, right? Or the pitchers to be that precise. The first baseman is trained to actually put his target way out towards second base. And instead, this was right into the thick of it. So so the first is it's a bad throw, I think, unless that really... Unless that was on purpose. Like they were seeking this result. Right. They got that result. Drawing the foul. Right. Um, it was exactly. But the second is, and this is the part that really I really get lost on. He beat the play. Like, wholly apart from any of this. Like, the fact that the ball hits Turner 
in the back of his right leg while he's crossing first base suggests that even if he was running inside the baseline, right, he beat it. So now, is, that's is, not the rule. Yeah, right? is, the, is the real problem here that they don't have review? Yes. They, they, even though they conducted a review, no, but they didn't. Right. So what were they so, doing that whole so time? They were on. They weren't. They, they were on. They were. They were getting an. Ex- this is what I heard this morning: is yeah. that they were getting an explanation from New York about why that play was not reviewable under the rules. Okay, so they were making sure that they couldn't review it, and so it yeah. wasn't to confirm the call when the umpire signals out yeah. it was just to sort of confirm that the call could not be yeah. challenged this leads into the larger question do we need more replay in baseball because um, re- baseball is relatively free yeah. of the curse that is football constant well, so I actually think the larger reviews. so to me the larger umpiring scandal of the world series hasn't been that like what's happened on the bases? Is it the inconsistent balls and strikes. Strike oh, it's and and it's so been I actually, so inconsistent. So I actually think that like it's not about replay at this point because you can't have replay on balls and strikes, right? It's about robots. Yeah, yeah, no, you, I, I agree that you can go tennis on this, right? At least for home play. So, so they tried it in the Arizona Fall League this year. Oh, how did it work? It didn't work great because there were like pitchers would throw these crazy breaking balls that would break through like the front inch of the strike zone and then like <laughs> bounce in the dirt through you know two feet. Was there an Ephus pitch? Um, not quite, but it was. <laughs> You can imagine someone with like a sharp curveball. Yeah, throwing. Well, the, you know. That suggests the strike zone might have to become a strike uh, watermelon, a strike watermelon, or something, right? Um, a but, strike watermelon. But that's the future, <laughs> and, and and I think that's the far bigger umpiring scandal. I just you know I don't. You can't make that call. Like there are some. It's like do you remember the in the is this kind of a let them play kind of argument? It's the final minutes and the rules. Are, yes and no. I mean, so you remember the A Rod play in the 2004 ALCS? Maybe it's right where mm-hmm. where A Rod's running where there's a close Bronson Arroyo right is is has the Ball you know when he when he shouted? No, 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 no. When he oh. chops, when he's when he chops, oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. when A Rod's running up and down the line and he yeah, chops choppy. the ball out of Arroyo. I think it's Arroyo's glove, mm-hmm. right? Um, that play is obvious in context, right? Where yep. where A Rod is doing something unnatural. That yeah, is yeah, not yeah. He was trying to move, get that result, right? Was, and 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 so I had no problem with that call in that situation. This is not. I mean, Turner. There are people who are more egregiously inside the base path on a regular basis when it's not called. You yeah, can't I, call I, I agree that I don't think Trey Turner was in any way trying no. to interfere. He's just doing what you do. What you do. Um, well, okay, so turning from that, predictions for tonight. Oh, man. Um, so it really, do you think, it, does it boil down to, like, is, is Scherzer healthy or not healthy? No, because I think Granky will be good too. I think I think this is I think this is going to be a, a wacky game. This could be a bullpen game. Then I think, I think this like is going to be like some six, seventh, eight. Because I, yeah. I think Scherzer is going to do what he does, which is throw like go at like hundred and thirty percent, right, and get, do like three innings of it before maybe five, yeah. right. And so and so I think I my prediction for tonight is that neither starter makes it through the sixth inning. Yeah, and that it becomes a bullpen game. And honestly, I mean, I know. That the road team has won each of the first six games, which, by the way, is the first time. Yeah, I was going to say history. this is re- nobody's talking about this as much yeah. as they should. This is bonkers. So it's not just baseball history, right? Fox flashed this out last night. The three major sports that have best of seven series yeah. have never had a best of seven series, not in any round, yeah. where the road team won the first six games. So that's a powerful point for the Astros. This sort of reversion to mean for the home field advantage, but I think all bets are off into one game. All this is why game sevens are amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm predicting, know, by the way, extra innings tonight. 
that's possible. Um, I mean, that, you, that's, you heard it here first I'm before try- before the Astros win. When was 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 ninety one the last time that a deciding game of a World Series went to extra innings? I don't know, but I'm really I'm, part of me doesn't really want that because I want to stay play watching it. But I'm predicting that Altuve is going to win. I it mean, walk come on a World 11. Series winning walk off in in in, the, in the if this happens, the, I want lots of credit. Right. Altuve, I'm not saying it's a home run or a hit you or know, what it I is. Have like, but I have multiple com law students who missed class yesterday and are missing class today because they're in Houston. I'd allow that. <laughs> that's bad. I basically said I can't formally say that's okay, but you know. But I'm not. Yeah, but, I, I but, do but, not see you there. I, you know, I I mortgage my daughter's future to go to Game Five of the 2015 <laughs> World Series. So I know it's legit. Um, hey, speaking of sports, uh, guess who's three and O? Oh? The Spurs, not the Knicks, not the Knicks. <laughs> Hashtag um, not the Knicks. Not the Knicks. <laughs> Although the Knicks won a game last night, so that was something. Yeah, you know, you can't tell too much from the early days of the season, but no. I really, I'm really am happy. With Here come the Spurs. They, they, they never they don't have to hear come because they never yeah, laughed yeah that's true um so game of thrones there was going to be all these prequels to restore our yeah. tv watching game of thrones habits and then one of them that i thought was the one that was supposed to be more advanced and i was told even had a pilot uh apparently it's just so not so great that they've canned it the whole thing the the series that was going to be set way in the game of thrones past not the more recent one uh apparently has gone away um, I'm bummed about that. The other one, I guess, is set sort of in the 200-ish years range before the... This is the Targaryen one? Yeah, exactly. House of the Dragon? Yeah. I'm a little worried because, to the best of my knowledge, this is not in any way going to be based on Martin's books or, or anything that he's told them about. Here, Here's the hidden transcript of how I... Or the, the manuscript of what it would have been. So this would just be somebody they hire to kind of cook up these stories in the general bounds of what he described. That all sounds like a way of producing some pretty mediocre tv maybe that's what the cancellation represents hey, mediocre tv nothing wrong with that uh, there's so much good stuff by the way i finally finished season two of occupied so i'm caught up and then occupied that's oh, incredible right? occupied's amazing occupied's very good it's really compelling i so enjoyed these glimpses into norway and uh, it was the characters are great the acting's incredible have i have i tr- have i tried to pitch you on secret city yet is that the one in Australia? Yeah, yeah, you mentioned it. That might be next. It, I mean, it, it, it so it'll either appeal to your intelligence and bureaucracy, intelligence bureaucracy sensi- sensibilities, yeah. or it will offend them. I can't tell which one. I will enjoy it then if it's if it's in that space. Like, there's a lot of like yeah. intra intelligence community bureaucracy in the series. On Occupied, do you know when season three? I don't. Are, they, are they are doing one? I hope. I don't know. Uh, hmm. Well, it, it, meanwhile, I'm, I'm getting nervous for you know season four, the the final season of Man in the High Castle. I know. I, I looked into like, is there some way I can bend? There's no way I'll be able to to catch up to you because it's like just a couple of weeks away, right? Yeah. There's not. I just don't have the travel. Season three of the Crown. Uh, the Crown will be watching. Right, I'm fully right. caught up on so that. We can do we can do some yeah. Crownage. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. All right. Um, we were going to talk about like Star Trek characters, but I think we've yeah, we've, save that. we've we've frivoled. We shriveled our way out of it. Um, so uh, just a reminder, next week we're going to be at the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security's annual CLE conference in D.C. So our show will be on Friday. Um, so, you know, we'll see what where we're going. Yeah, there is no telling. Uh, it's going to be really fun because we'll have a larger discussion with other people. And um, if you have ideas for things you really hope we'll address there, by all means, send them our way. I think we're probably going to talk about the things that are looming for the next sort of year or so i'm sure we'll talk about the uh the renewal section 215 or not or pay uh usa freedom act authorities and related uh surveillance authorities that are expiring in about two months now we'll probably what talk about what else we talk about 
Um, the Supreme Court, like, you know, big national yeah. cases coming to the Supreme Court. I mean, there's, you know, the, our field is unfortunately ever shifting. Yeah. And, and we'll talk about whatever, you know. Don't you wish sometimes we were historians? You know, it's very relaxing. I, you know, my book is is very much a history, and so it's very relaxing to toil in those vineyards instead of the uh, cutting edge ones. Um, but it's great to do both. Um, speaking of vineyards, actually, um, we shouldn't we shouldn't allow the episode to go without noting um, the really the increasingly alarming and disturbing and troubling situation in California. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I know we have a bunch of listeners out there. I hope you are staying safe and avoiding. Avoiding the fires, um, you know, just know that we're, we're thinking about you. What the heck is wrong with the fire management processes in California? How can this keep happening? And how can they be cutting power like they're doing to so many people? The, so, everything about this is bonkers. I'm not defending PG&E at all. Um, you know, I think there's there are complexities to the fire management plan when you've got so many fires across such a broad distance. Uh, and such a broad space, but my cousin, I mean more the prevention rather than once yeah, it breaks out. But my I mean my understanding is that you know the prevention becomes harder and harder with climate change, right? Because you've got drier and drier climates, right? You have um, denser and denser sort of. You is know, it really just that this sort of thing happens in places that are not California with population density near the dry and affected areas? Is it th- as simple think, as that? I think we're not as aware of the wildfires that happen in other parts yeah. of the country. Well, and once you move interior, you don't get the Santa Ana winds and that sort of thing fanning things along, blowing, I mean, right. blowing embers. I mean, there are topographic and geographic reasons why this is especially maybe pronounced maybe in California it. as well. I just, you know, um, there, there, in any other time, I would not worry that the federal government's apparent indifference to this phenomenon was political, right? Like at any other time, I would think like, you know, it's, but it's interesting that the president who seems willing to comment on everything, right, has very little to say about the plight of California. A, if he were to say something, you wouldn't like it. Probably. So be careful what you ask for. Uh, B, you know, that to me is, you know, very marginal to the issues Agreed. of the long-term management of the power lines Agreed. and whatever it is about the power system that appears to give rise to this yeah, yeah, no, This is not there. a Trump story. I'm not trying yeah, to say it's, it is. It's a, it's a California and PG&E story. But it's a story that we should be paying more attention to, those of us who don't live there. Yeah, no, it's horrible. All right. All right on, that, on that uplifting note, um, please do stay safe and, and um, uh, how, what's the opposite of, of on fire? Not on fire out there? I see. Stay I see. And just, just stay safe. Yeah. Adios. Adios. I stole your line. That was awesome. <laughs>